not be left unpunished. Evil will not be left unpunished. God will respond to all the evil in the world and He will fill the earth with His glory. Do it again. Evil will not be left unpunished. God will respond to all the evil in the world and He will fill the earth with His glory. Does that sound familiar? Book of Revelation, right? We heard that over and over and over again. Here's what, here's what I want you to think about. God explains why He's going to judge the Babylonians here in these verses 6-20. through 20. He's going to explain why I'm going to judge them. You're thinking, well, I'm glad I'm not the Babylonians. Okay, That's what most of us think. This is, that's them, this is us. These verses offer us a chance to examine our lives for the same sins. That's what's going on here. We can't just dismiss this. This is some old antiquated part of the Bible and you got the Babylonians and the people of Judah and all this old stuff going on here and I just don't need to pay attention. These verses offer us a chance to examine our lives for the same sins. And so, this um, outline is going to have one point, okay? That's easy enough. One point, but there'll be five subpoints, all right? Can you figure out what the five subpoints are going to be? The woes, okay? So, the first thing you need to think about if you're outlining here, the sin of pride will be punished by God. That's the one point. The sin of pride will be punished by God. In verses 4 and 5, you heard last week, God identified the sin of pride as the root cause of the Babylonians' destruction. Remember that? Richard preached through that. That was the... One of the, the root cause of their destruction. Pride is what we might call an umbrella sin, okay? Everybody got a picture of an umbrella? It, 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 it's over everything. And by that we mean that other sins flow out of that pride. In verses 6 through 20, there are five woes. Five particular sins that flow out of pride. So one point, <coughs> excuse me, the sin of pride will be punished by God. And God gets very specific as we go. So, verses 6-8, through eight, Woe to greed. Okay? Woe to greed. Verse 6, Shall not all these take up their taunt against Him? Him's referring to Babylon. Okay? Shall not all these take up their <coughs> taunt against Him with scoffing and riddles for Him and say, Woe to Him who heaps up what is not His own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. The two, you see two words there? Shall not all these. All these refers to the nations that Babylon has destroyed. All the places they've conquered and how they went about doing that. Shall not all these, all the nations that Babylon has destroyed, all the nations will have their say against Babylon. Shall not all these take up their, what? Taunt. That word taunt is used in other Old Testament passages to refer to the ridicule uh, spoken against those who receive God's judgment. That's what, he's, that's what the nations are saying. In other words, when it comes time for Babylon to get theirs, all the nations are going to be doing what? Every dog has his day. Your time's coming, and it's here. 
They taunt them. And when you combine that word taunt with those words scoffing and riddles, the idea is that the Babylonians will become the joke of the nations. One time big, powerful, awesome. And one day there's coming when everybody's going to do what? They're going to laugh. They're going to be the scorn, the ridicule. They're going to be the joke of all the nations. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, and here's God's declaration, Woe to him who heaps up. Notice there, they don't just take. What do they do? They heap it. Who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. I mean, we could dissect that, but the Babylonians are condemned for their excessive greed in conquering in other nations. You know, you read the Old Testament. War was going on all the time. Nations was fighting against nations. But the Babylonians, and by the way, the Assyrians, and the ones who are going to come after the Babylonians, they were guilty of excessive, just wiping almost civilizations out where they were unrecognizable and conquering other nations. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. Then you go to verses 7 and 8. <coughs> you got the declaration, the woe. And here's the judgment announced. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who make you tremble, then you will be spoiled for them. What's being said there? You heaped it up. You were greedy. You destroyed people. But guess what? There's a time coming. Your debtors will suddenly arise. Those who awake, they will make you tremble. And then you're, you'll be spoiled for them. What's going to happen? The tables are going to turn, right? Babylon has been ruthless and cruel when taking from other nations. But the day is coming when your debtors, they'll suddenly arise. Just, just like a creditor. If you owe someone money and you hold out long enough, what's going to happen? Somebody comes rolling up, right, to collect. Just like a creditor comes to collect their debt, other nations will come to collect. They're coming, Babylon. What Babylon has taken from other nations... How they've just heaped up and destroyed and, and, and pillaged. What Babylon has taken from other nations is in reality only on loan to them until someone stronger comes along and does what? The exact same thing to them. And guess what? If you read Daniel chapter 5 in the Old Testament, you'll find out who comes along. It's the Medes and the Persians who come along and destroy the, Bab- the Babylonians. Verse 8. What Babylon has done to the nations, it conquered, will be done to it. Why? Because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. You've plundered. God promised the Babylonians that just as they plundered many nations, so one day others will plunder them. Why? Notice what it says. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. So they just didn't come and, you know, give them a Gibbs head slap and then move on. They wiped these people out. It was, um, they were merciless in how they conquered. And guess what? One day, what's the old saying? Your day's coming. Why? For the blood of man, the violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. There, there was nothing that got in the way of the Babylonians building their kingdom. 
Not even life itself. The life of others meant nothing to them. You got in the way, they didn't care. Life was, it meant nothing to them. If you look back to chapter 1 verse 17, it says, Is he then to keep on? That's Habakkuk talking to God about the he there is Babylon. Is he to keep on emptying his net and what? Mercilessly killing nations forever. That was what Habakkuk was asking God. Is that going to be the case, God? These people are just going to keep on. God will someday hold the Babylonians accountable for their indiscriminate bloodshed. It's coming. This greed they had. You know, you're thinking, well, I still can't figure out how this affects me. <coughs> greed is one of those sins that kind of flies under the radar for us. For all of us. You're like, well, I don't know. Okay. You have a smartphone, but do you have the new one? You're going, "Uh uh-oh. You have a car or a truck, but do you have this car or this truck, right? You have this home, but I want that home. Americans carry... $687 billion in credit card debt. You know what that means, right? They owe money that they don't have. We owe money, we lost $687, what did I say? Billion dollars. The U.S. government is $21 trillion in debt. Again, that's money we don't have that we owe. Yeah, we Americans, we're greedy. Verses 9 and 11. Woe to injustice. God declares, verse 9, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house. Babylon is condemned for relying on treasures and wealth for protection. It says there to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. You know, it's like the eagle that it builds its nest in unreachable places. That's what the eagle does, right? He does that for a reason. Nobody can get to me. The Babylonians attempted to build a city that was unreachable to its enemies. See, they pillaged everyone else and took from them to do what? Build their own kingdom, thinking no one will touch us. See, see the greedy man or person does whatever is necessary to protect himself and his stuff, right? Don't mess with my stuff. And at whatever cost, get more stuff and then rely on the stuff for protection and security, right? Herodotus, a, a Greek historian during the 5th century, says that Babylon had a huge wall around the city. It had a hundred bronze gates. It was wide enough that a four-horse chariot could run around that city on that. That's a big wall, right? For a four-horse chariot to be able to run on that. They, they pillaged, they plundered, they heaped up and built their own place thinking no one's going to touch us. Verse 10 says, You have devised shame for your house. Notice what it says here. By cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. God will hold Babylon responsible for killing many people. They cut peoples off. 
Like I said, they went into a lot of countries, a lot of cities, and they would decimate that place. And you know what they do? They go out in their fields, just in case they miss someone, they would go out in their fields and plow the fields up and sow them with salt. Those of you who farm knows what that does, right? You ain't going to plant no crops for a long, long time. They cut off many peoples. And it says to the Babylonians, you forfeited your life. Verse 11 says, here's why. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork will respond. The stolen wealth. See, like I told you, they'd go into these places and they would wipe them out. They would go into a city and tear down all the houses, whatever structures were in that building, and then they would take the stone and the wood and they would take it back to their city and do what? Build their city with that. What was taken from other nations to build Babylon? God says it will cry out against you. The stones and the wood beams taken from other nations, buildings will serve as a witness against you, Babylon. One day all you took will cry out against you. Here's what God's saying. I will not forget what you have done. I will not forget. What were the Babylonians doing? They were building their kingdom, right? And they were wiping others out to do it, mercilessly killing people, decimating civilizations. And here's what I would say is a way of application. God, this Christian, God cares about how you build your life. He cares about how you make your money, how you accumulate possessions. In order, in making money and accumulating possessions, which there's nothing wrong with that, if you're doing it for the right reasons, if we take advantage of someone else to create gain for ourselves, God is not pleased with that. So that's what the Babylonians were doing. They took advantage of others to build their own kingdom. You're saying, well, I don't do that. Well, that's how we can apply this. Is, is that a sin that creeps up in our life? Injustice. Do we, in order to get what we want and to build our kingdom, will we go to the point of taking advantage of someone else to get that? Greed <coughs> leads to injustice. In other words, they think in terms of gain. Nothing's going to get in my way. Verse 10 says, But in the end, that person ends up losing his own soul. You have forfeited your life. We can go to the New Testament and, and see a way of better understanding this. If we went to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 12, verses 16 through 21, and I'll kind of make this short. Jesus tells a parable of a rich man who had an abundance of crops. And what does he do? I'll tear down my barns, I'll build bigger barns, and I will fill those barns, right? You know the story. And there I will store my grain and my goods. And I will what? Say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. This is a perfect example of the greedy sinning against his own soul. What is, what is Jesus saying there in that parable? This person was, they'll get whatever they want, at whatever cost, even to the, their soul being lost. How do we know? Because this is what Jesus says right after that. But God said to him, Fool, 
This night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? In other words, in my terminology, you're going to leave it all behind, right? Heard the story of two guys talking at a funeral, and the guy was really wealthy. Again, nothing wrong with that. One guy said to the other, and said, Reckon what he left behind. He said, Oh, he left it all behind. Whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure, listen, for himself and is not rich toward God. Did it say it was wrong to accumulate wealth? It's wrong to accumulate treasure for what? Himself and not be rich toward God. Instead of fulfilling his moral responsibility to care for the needs of others, he's rebuked for laying up treasure for who? Himself. And not for being rich toward God. Again, these verses don't prohibit wealth. Jesus clearly warns his hearers concerning the dangerous eternal implications of wealth with its tendency to seduce us toward complacency, self-sufficiency, and greed. Now, everybody understand, look this way. Don't go away and say the preacher said it was wrong for me to have money and have stuff, right? He didn't say that. God said it was wrong to heap all that stuff up for yourself and not be rich toward God with that. Third woe, verses 12 through 14. Woe to violence. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. It's interesting here. You've you got to look closely here. Individual sin leads to cultural sin. Notice, woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. It wasn't just a few people. They built their entire civilization upon this. Here's what I would say. Individual sin can corrupt others. You ever had somebody say, well, my sin don't hurt nobody but me? Mm. The whole of Babylon became corrupt. They built a town and cities on blood and iniquity. Here's what I would say to myself and to you. What What we build reflects something about who we are. It reflects what we value. Yesterday, we built a building, right? We paid for a building to be built. Praise the Lord, it's paid for. We did so in order to use it to do what? Reach our community. The carnival, among other outreach opportunities. God blessed us with the money to build that and be debt free so we could in turn go out and reach people using that. It shows what we value, reaching our community for Jesus. When someone asks you, and you've probably already had them ask you, right? I've had people ask me hundreds of times. When someone says, what is that building for? You say, it's for reaching our community for Jesus. That's what you need to... And by the way, they're probably going to look at you like you've got two heads when you say that. But that's what we built it for, right? This is yes. What the Babylonians built reflected violence. Their cities reflected love for themselves. Verse 13. 
Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that the peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. Babylonians, Babylonian cities, or the, the nation of Babylon, and they had a city named Babylon. They, they built other cities. Cities were ultimately, um, they will be destroyed to give notice to others. It is, is it not from the Lord of hosts? You, you see that? That term, Lord of hosts, is, is used in the Old Testament to refer to God as the mighty warrior over the armies. And it means that God controls man's destiny and will punish injustice. Is it not from the Lord of hosts? Remember, what has Habakkuk been asking God? Why are you using these people? They are merciless. Is it not from the Lord of hosts? that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. God's going to cause the burning down of the Babylonian civilization. It's going to come. All of that labor, all of that labor to build the corrupt towns and cities will fall in the day of God's judgment. Right? God says it's all going to come crumbling down. Again, that Lord of hosts there refers to God's visible control over world events. It indicates a deeper reality at work in human history. A power greater than the oppressor. That's what, that's what God's telling Habakkuk. God, I know who they are, but I'm greater, Habakkuk. Live by faith. Trust me. I know what I'm doing. Instead of the glory of the oppressor, the earth, notice what it says, will be filled with the knowledge of God's glory. This section ends with a statement declaring the glory and the greatness of God. Notice there in verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God's glory will be seen in judgment that He brings on the Babylonians. Anytime God carries out His righteous judgment, His, His holiness shines forth. That's what God's doing when He judges sin. That's what he's doing. He's putting his glory and his holiness on display. God reminds the greedy, the unjust, the the violent oppressor. He reminds us that he is ultimately the one who's going to conquer it all. By the way, we we already know that, right? We've studied Revelations. We know that's coming. Suppose. Suppose you were given the opportunity to build a town or a city. Suppose someone came to you and says, I'm going to give you the opportunity to build a town or a city and you can have 100 people to help you. And every single one of those people is just like you. Exactly like you. Okay? Are you thinking? That might be scary. 100 people exactly like me. Are you ready? What kind of city would you build? What would your city value? What things would be important? Would your city glorify God or would it glorify you? Verses 15 through 20. We've got to move. Woe to abuse. 15 through 17. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. <clears throat> you pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. The word drink here is a metaphor. He's not talking about alcohol. It's it's a metaphor for Babylon's wrath against other nations. Their wrath made many other nations drunk. 
Again, it's not alcohol. Their wrath was so terrible. Being drunk is how it affected. They were so abusive. And why did they do it? Look, it says in order to gaze at their nakedness. This is another metaphor that indicates shame and humiliation. You ever been around somebody who just wanted to do something to somebody else to humiliate and shame them? That's the way the Babylonians did. It was fun for them. The prophet Jeremiah in chapter 51 verse 7 describes the oppression of Babylon as a cup of drunkenness. Verse 16 says, You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around you and utter shame will come upon your glory. God will turn the Babylonians' earthly glory into shame. The cup in the Lord's right hand there is symbolic of God's punishment on Babylon. The tables are going to be turned. They, they will become drunk and exposed and be shameful and humiliated in the same way they've done to others. They'll receive what they deserve because God is just. Verse 17. The violence done to Lebanon. This is talking about uh, the Assyrians who were before them. <coughs> the violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beast that terrified them for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. In reading the Old Testament, what was it that Lebanon was famous for? It's cedar trees, right? Babylon, when they conquered the Assyrians, they did to them like they did, but they wiped them clean. And they, they took all of that, all those famous cedars of Lebanon, and what do you think they did with it? They built their kingdom. Isaiah chapter 14 verse 8 talks about that. There was also the murder and willful destruction of people and animals. Now now you people who hunt going, now wait a minute. That ain't what he's talking about here. They didn't kill animals to eat them. They killed things just to be killing things because they enjoyed killing You know, I can't, I, as I read this, I can't be held but taken back to, to the book of Revelation. Did we ever hear the word Babylon come up in our study of Revelation? Remember it was figurative for the anti-God world that was going to be judged? The real Babylon of the Old Testament is figurative for what the world is in the New Testament. If you remember Revelation chapter 18, verses 2 and 3, And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her her luxurious living. New Testament, that's talking about the world. It's using Babylon. We're talking about here to be figurative for our world that we live in today. And what is God going to do to it? Exactly what He's going to do doing to Babylon. <clears throat> Verses 18 through 20. Speaks of how the idols of Babylon are worthless before God. Woe to idolatry. If you're wanting to keep your outline going, woe to idolatry. Verses 18 through 20. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. In short, absolutely nothing. The idol cannot speak. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. 
In other words, what's the point of this idol you're making? It can't even talk. It can't even do anything to help you. Verse 19, Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Wake up! To a silent stone, Arise! Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold, and there is no breath at all in them. What's the point? Verse 19 indicates that the person who creates the idol turns to the idol and says, help me. That's the application for us. What does they do here? Wake up, get up, and help me. That's what we do with our idols. And we're going to talk about that just a minute. He thinks about the idol and he worships the idol. Notice there it says, Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver. <coughs> in this time, when people had idols, they, they were often elaborate and they covered them with gold and silver to enhance their standing. They worshiped their idols, right? They covered them with gold and silver. And what do you usually do with something gold and silver? You, you shine it and keep it glowing and pretty, right? It's the idea of worshiping that. There's no life in the idol. Now, is there such a thing as modern day idolatry? I would say absolutely. There's idolatry around us and even in us. Listen to Colossians chapter 3 verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. It's interesting that it refers to these things as idolatry. What does an idol mean? You're going, well, I don't have this statue in my house. I don't have this thing on the dash of my car that you know, I worship and bow down to. What does it mean? It means that you set your heart on something. You want something, but don't get it. And you're longing for it, you're greedy for it, and it becomes your God. That is an idol. You ever had something you wanted and whatever cost it took to get it? You're setting your heart on something that isn't God and it becomes your God. You focus on it. You want it. You hunger for it. It's what you live for and it becomes your God. Now, what my idol might be might not be your idol. We all have them. They're, they're all different. An idol is anything that contends for ultimate affection in your life. It's that thing or person that sits on the throne of your life. Boy, I had to do some repenting this week. You know, idolatry can also be false doctrine. And by that I mean you make a God of your own imagination. imagination. It's when you begin to think of a God a certain way and reject what the Bible says about God. That's idolatry. You're not receiving the Word of God. You don't accept what He says about Himself. Instead, you say something like, and I've heard people say this, well, I like to think of God as... You ever had somebody say that? What is it they normally say? Well, my God, and I'm like, well, that's the problem. I like to think of God as a loving God, or I like to think of God as a compassionate, generous God, or I like to think of God as... You just fill in the blank. 
Idolatry says, I have the right to come to God and say, I like this about you, but I don't like that. God is really good, and I'm going to take in some of that, but this, I I don't like that. If that's the way you approach the Bible, then you are an idolater. You create your own God. And some of you might be thinking, does it really matter how you think about God? We're called to accept God one way. It's the way His Word says to accept Him. By His Word, what He is like, it matters because idolatry, listen, leads to self-worship. Well, what should we do? Back at 2.20 tells us what to do. But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. This is a picture of God's awesome power. Remember, each section ends with a display of God's glory. He is in His heavenly temple, it says. He's ruling over the nations and the nations before Him. For God, they're like a drop in the bucket. He's powerful and He's mighty. And as a result of that, we stand in awe before Him at His awesome power. He's talking to Habakkuk. Live by faith. Here's who I am, Habakkuk. Idolatry lowers God out of His heavenly place to something earthly. But it says, oh no, the Lord is in His holy temple. He's ruling and reigning. This is His show. He's ruling and reigning. If somebody, it's somebody who comes and says, God, I worship You as You really are. Show me from the Bible who You are. And I will worship you. That's what this is talking about. God, show me yourself in the Bible and help me by your grace to worship you. And then it says, so we're in silence before him. Listen, you really get a picture of the glory of God and the holiness of God, and you will shut your mouth. You won't be saying, I like this about God and I don't like that. The Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before Him. You see, this is acceptable worship right here. The Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth stand silent before Him. Listening to His Word. Humbling ourselves. We, we need this church, don't we? We need it. We need to humble ourselves before God and His Word. Quickly. Four things and we're done. Application. Turn away from idols. That's simple enough, right? Turn away from idols. <clears throat> and don't answer too quickly saying I don't have any. An idol is something you worship, something you value or trust in instead of God. I asked myself this week, Gary, do you have a God of your own imagination or is it the God of the Bible? Test yourself. Here's how you do that. Are there passages in the Bible that you simply cannot accept? I've had people say this to me. I know it's in the Bible, but... And I'm like, no. Turn away from idols. Number two. Are you living for something other than the glory of God? Test yourself. Boy, this this, this is a hard one. When you're weak, 
And when you're weary, worried, and tired, to who do you turn? What brings you renewal of your soul? Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. What do you do when you need renewal in your life or your soul? A lot of times we get sucked into the entertainment culture of America that says, I find renewal in... Now again, don't go saying the preacher said it was wrong to go to the beach because I'd be in trouble. Or, or go to the mountains or, or do this. I really have to ask myself this week, when, I, when I'm in a position like this, what do I run to? Do I run to God? Or do I find something else that I think that will relieve my, my misery or my hurting? Number three, what do you trust in? If you were standing before God right now, giving the account of your life, and He said, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? What would you say? Well, I'm a good person. I attend church regularly or, or not. I'm a church member. I'm on this or that committee. I did this. I did that. You know who that's trusting in? You. Are you trusting in yourself? If you are, then you're trusting in an eye. And fourthly, I would say get before God. I read verse 20 and it says, just take time to be quiet before Him and listen. Read the Word, ponder over it, and think. Who is God? And just be silent before Him. The Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before Him. Let's pray.